Heavenly Father, we ask indeed that you would send your spirit to help us this morning to see that your ways are wonderful and therefore we should obey you and keep your ways. Oh Lord, we pray that you'd be giving us insight this morning by the power of your spirit and Lord, we pray that we would be refreshed in heart and rejoice all the more fully in what you have done for us in Christ Jesus and we pray this in his name. Amen. Well, this morning we carry on with our study in the book of Colossians, in Colossians chapter 2, and we've been considering what uh, the Apostle Paul has been teaching us, what Christ has done for us. Uh, The Apostle Paul has been speaking, of course, of who Jesus is, and he's trying to encourage the, the Colossians, the Christians in Colossae, to not take up whatever heresy had started to creep into the church, and particularly uh, a heresy that was encouraging them to follow man-made traditions, man-made laws that was being imposed upon them. And we're going to start looking at those, uh, Lord willing, next time I'm back in the pulpit, uh, some of those uh, regulations that were being imposed upon them. But instead, he's been reminding them before he gets to that of what they have in Christ Jesus, what the Lord Jesus has actually done for them. And so we saw uh, that he has put off the sinful nature with them in verse 11 with the circumcision done by the not the circumcision done by the hands of men but with the circumcision done by Christ. They've also been baptized into Christ's death. And then last week uh, we looked at how we have forgiveness of sins and how the debt that we owe against God. We all have this debt when we're born into this world because we owe the Lord work but then we fail to do what he has uh, prescribed for us. And so that debt we read in verse 14, has been forgiven. It has been cancelled and uh, he took it away, nailing it to the cross. The mechanism by which he cancelled our sins, he wiped away that debt, was by the cross. And now we're going to look at one of the results of this death taking away our debt. What does it mean that our debt has been cancelled? What is one of the results of this? And that brings us to verse 15, where we see that one of the results of the fact that our debt has been wiped away is that Satan has been triumphed over, that Jesus himself has triumphed over Satan. He has made a public spectacle of him. Look with me, if you've got a Bible there, at Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, where we read, And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Am I right to say that Satan is the one that is made a public spectacle of here? Well, yes, uh, we see that, that he's disarmed the powers and authorities. And those words are used in Ephesians chapter 6 when it speaks about the war that we wage as Christians. And it says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We should not think, be ignorant of the fact that Satan does exist and he has evil demons that are with him. They are all fallen angels and they do wage war against the people of God. But here we see that Jesus has made a public spectacle of Satan. What does that mean? What does it mean to be a public spectacle? Well, the idea here is very uh, easy for people of that day to understand because they lived in the Roman world. And what happened in the Roman world when an emperor or one of his generals conquered a particular enemy, a particular nation, what would they do? Well, he would come back to the city and particularly to Rome and he would be on a chariot and he would ride in with this chariot 
and he would be there and a slave may be holding a, a wreath above his head as he rides in and what would be becoming behind him? Well, there'd be this great entourage, but included in that entourage would be, if they'd caught him alive, the, the enemy, the, the king of another nation. And he would be chained up with his uh, henchmen who were fighting against uh, the Roman Empire and they would trail behind this emperor as he's there. And so a public spectacle is made of them. They are shamed publicly and all the Roman people would be there rejoicing at the freedom they now have because yet another enemy is no longer in charge of them. Another enemy is no threat to them anymore. They have freedom because of their emperor or because of this general uh, who has rescued them from the dominion potentially of another enemy. And that is what Jesus wants us to understand through the Apostle Paul is what he has done to Satan. He has made a public spectacle of Satan. He has triumphed over Satan. And that means that Satan is disarmed. Notice what it means. If Satan is made a public spectacle of by Jesus Christ, what does it say at the beginning of verse 15? And having disarmed the powers and authorities, Satan and his demons, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. One of the great truths that is given to us in Scripture about Christ's victory is that he has disarmed Satan. Now, what weapons does Satan have? Well, one of his great weapons that he uses against God's people and against the rest of humanity is by accusing people of wrongdoing. He is the great accuser. The word Satan, in it's a Hebrew word. It can mean just an enemy. And even the enemy who is there in the courtroom, who is bringing charges against you. So you picture the courtroom and your enemy is there and they charge you with wrongdoing before the judge. And that is what Satan does. He charges people with wrongdoing. He loves to accuse you of sin. And we see that in the scripture. We see Satan when he shows up that he is uh, is accusing people. If you know the book of Job, it is a classic example where you see Satan getting up and accusing Job of just following God for his own benefit. He's not really interested in you, God. It's just because you're really, really good to him. He wouldn't be interested in you if you didn't bless him so much. And the whole of the book of Job is trying to make a point about the way that we can suffer, even as followers of God. And then that passage that we read before, Zechariah chapter 3. Zechariah may not be a book that you're very familiar with, but Zechariah chapter 3 has a classic example of what is Satan's role there as he's he's come before Joshua the high priest. It's to stand there and accuse Joshua of sin. Look at his filthy garments. That's what his job is. He wants to accuse people. And so we see it there with Job. We see it with Joshua. And in Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, he's called the accuser of our brothers. He's actually called that, that he is the great accuser of our brothers. Now, how does Satan actually accuse people and accuse us even today? Well, he accuses us of actual sin that we have done. He takes the law and he shows us He applies it to us and shows us that we are sinners. He shows us our filth, how we have wronged God again and again. And then he can even come with us to us with extra laws. Laws that we are not under, but he makes us think that we're under them. And by not keeping them, we are great sinners as well. 
And that's probably what's going on in the Colossian church, is that these extra laws are being applied by some false teachers and Satan is making them feel that they are in the wrong because they haven't done these extra laws that they hadn't heard about previously. There's examples given to us in the text. I mean, circumcision is mentioned in chapter uh, 2, verse 11. And so the Apostle Paul uh, wants to make a, a point there that we've looked at before, that the circumcision that we enjoy now is a circumcision of the Spirit, and he makes that clear in his other writings, that we do not uh, need to get circumcised uh, any longer, uh, that that law does not apply particularly to the Gentiles. But then there's uh, down in verse 16, right after this verse, verse 15, about having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. And then he introduces verse 16, Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. Satan wants people to think that what they eat and what they drink is wrong. He wants them to have these food laws applied to them and he accuses them of not keeping them. And of course, when it comes to religious festivals and special days, he wants them to understand, yes, you have not kept those as well, and so you are in the wrong. He wants to put new laws upon them so that they feel bad. Now, why would Satan do that? Why would he want to add extra laws to people and make them feel bad? Why does he accuse us of sin? Well, he wants us to live in fear. He wants us to live in fear. He wants us to live in fear of death and what is to come when we die. He wants us to live in fear of death and what is to come so we don't follow God, so we don't follow after God. We feel a guilt in ourselves, we then fear death, and then we think we've got to do something to remedy this. Not trust in Christ, we've got to make our own righteousness. We've got to keep the laws ourselves. If I'm to overcome this guilt, I must try harder and work harder and keep more and more of the laws of God and even possibly extra laws just to make sure that I am safe when I die. That is Satan's strategy. He wants to break our relationship with God and particularly the trust that we should have in Christ's righteousness and start to depend upon our own righteousness by keeping special religious festivals, by making sure we eat rightly and drink rightly. He wants us to keep those laws so that we will trust in our work rather than the work of the Lord Jesus. And none of us are free from Satan's accusations. None of us are free. If you haven't felt Satan accusing you and making you feel guilty about sin that you have handed over to Christ and asked for forgiveness for, then I would worry about where you're going with your Christian life. Satan loves to attack God's people. You see that he even attacks God in the scriptures. Even God is not exempt from Satan's accusations. You see it in the book of Job. He starts to accuse God of not being fair, not doing right. And you see that he even tempts the Lord Jesus. If he will go after the Lord Jesus, if he will go after God, he will come after you as well. Ministers are not exempt. I just heard this week a confession from a, a pastor that he said he rarely experiences a Monday without the temptation to commit suicide. Every Monday, he pretty much guarantees that there's a desire after the Sunday service that there's a desire to commit suicide. And I can empathise with that. Mondays are often a hard day for me. I remember what I said, particularly on the Sunday morning, everything that I said that was 
I could have said better or I said that was wrong or the things that I didn't say, they come to me. Oh, I should have said that. And that's what I think about. And then any negative comment that someone makes, it gets exacerbated. And they probably didn't mean it to be that negative, but it gets exacerbated. And so on Sundays, you can be quite miserable. Now, it doesn't happen every week for me, but I empathise with this pastor that every Monday there's that temptation to commit suicide. Why is that? It's because Satan is there saying, you're a bad pastor. You're a terrible pastor. Why would anyone listen to you? You're a sinner. You're a filthy, rotten person. And so if Satan goes after ministers, he goes after Jesus Christ, he goes after God himself, then I'm sure he's coming after you as well if you're a believer in Jesus Christ and coming to you and reminding you of your sin and even imposing extra laws upon you so that you feel guilty. But then we read Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them by the cross. Christ has made a public spectacle of Satan. How has he done it? What was the battle that Jesus went into against the great enemy and won? It was at the cross. That was the battle. That is what is told to us at verse 15. And he triumphed over them by the cross. Now, it's not clear in the Greek that it is the cross that is being referenced there. And if you've got a, a Bible there, it's probably got a footnote next to it. And you can drop down if it's got cross in your translation. And it says, or them in him. Uh, it's just the, the pronoun that's used there at the end of that verse. Uh, and it could refer to Jesus. So it could refer to him. Or it could actually refer to the cross. And so the translators have to try and work out what are we going to do with it, uh, whether we translate it as him or it or the cross. Uh, the NIV translation has gone with the cross, and that's because at the end of verse 14 it says, nailing it to the cross. And so then when they see that pronoun, they think, oh, it's referring from verse 15 back to the end of verse 14. But we also find that it could refer back to Jesus as the one who has disarmed the powers and authorities and made a public spectacle of them over uh, triumphing over them by the, the cross. Uh, so it could refer back to Jesus. I think it's a reference to the cross and particularly his work because that is where we see Christ triumphing. I don't think it's unfair to take it as not just the work of Christ but his special work where he triumphed over Satan at the cross. And it then is this wonderful illustration that is given to us of the battle that Christ fought against Satan and how he triumphed over him, how he made a public spectacle of them. How is it that the cross is the triumph over Satan? Why is it that Jesus at the cross triumphed over Satan? Well, what is Satan's weapon? One of his great weapons is to be the accuser, and he reminds you of how bad you've been. But if verse 14 of Colossians 2 is true, then Satan has no weapon. He's shooting blanks from his gun. What did verse 14 teach us last week? The debt has been cancelled. It has been wiped away. So he reminds us of our sin and we say, but that sin has been erased. So I shouldn't feel guilty. I shouldn't worry. The fear has been removed. You're shooting blanks. Satan, when you make accusations against me, because there is no debt that is against my account anymore. I am free. And so the cross is the great triumph over Satan because there is no longer any weight to his accusations because every sin has been forgiven. 
It has been cancelled. And so when he reminds us of that sin, we say, but Jesus has wiped it away. And I do not need to fear you anymore. And that is what is taught to us in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 to 15. Since the children have flesh and blood, he, that is Jesus, too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death. Jesus shared in our humanity. Why? So that he might, by his death, destroy him who holds the power of death. And then the author of Hebrews clarifies who that person is. The devil and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Our fear of death and the judgment to come makes us slaves of Christ, of, of Satan, makes us slaves of Satan, our fear that we have. But if Christ has forgiven our sins by his death, then we're set free. And we no longer have to fear the accusations of Satan. We were filthy, but now the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, has taken away our filth, and we're clothed in righteous robes. And that's that wonderful image that is given to us in Zechariah chapter 3, and it's there in the book of Revelation as well. The robes of righteousness that are put upon us. Satan is shooting a gun at us with no bullets. He's disarmed and we have nothing to fear. And this means that the cross, the cross of Christ, is deliciously ironic in so many ways. Satan crucified Christ. He got into Judas and led to his crucifixion. Satan shamed Christ. He disarmed Christ at the cross. Jesus is there. Nothing in his hands. And he's triumphing over Christ at the cross. But as Christ's enemies shamed Christ, as Christ's enemies disarmed him and triumphed over him, what was Christ doing? He was shaming them. He was making a public spectacle of them. He was disarming Satan himself and all his demons and all his enemies. He was disarming them and triumphing over them. So the cross is not Christ's shame as they intended it to be. It is his glory. It is his triumph. It's truly delicious. I just, you can't make this stuff up. They were trying to shame Christ and instead he is shaming them. He's making a public spectacle of Satan at the cross. So then what are we to do when Satan accuses us of sin and of not keeping certain laws about food or special days or all these other regulations that he loves to pop upon us? Well, we must firstly remember that Christ has made a public spectacle of him, disarmed him and triumphed over him. Christ has tied up the strong one, is what he refers to in the Gospels. He has tried up the strong one and set us free. He has plundered the strong man's house by the application of the Spirit, uh, through the Spirit of Christ's death to us. Satan has been triumphed over. Oh, yes, Satan has no shame and he's completely audacious. So he still attacks. He still attacks God's people, but he's bluffing. There is no weight to his attacks. Whilst in chains, trailing behind Christ's chariot, he calls out to Christ's people who are watching the spectacle, the public spectacle, and he accuses us of sin. He says, I know how you treat your family, you Christian. I know your work practices. I know what you say about your friends and your family and your neighbours and your brothers and sisters in Christ. I know how you speak behind closed doors about them. I know what you do when no one can see. I know your internet history. I know your thoughts 
and how wicked they are. He reminds us of our sin and he tells us about dangers. You're going to suffer too for being a Christian. You're going to die as well and you're going to go to hell with me. You're following the wrong religion. You haven't kept the right laws. God is angry with you still. But it's pathetic as we remember Satan's position. What is Satan like? He's like a prisoner, handcuffed on his way to the electric chair. And you're there behind the bars and the fence, and you can see him being led to the electric chair, to the room where he will be put, an end will be put to him. In the biblical language, it's not an electric chair, it's a lake of burning sulfur. That is what Satan is being led to. And he's there and he's calling out names through the fence to you. And he's reminding you of what you've done. He's pulling menacing faces. He's giving you the evil eye. He may even be raising his shackled hands as he's being led to that room to shoot at you with his fingers, to intimidate you. And it may seem scary. You know how you see sometimes um, in movies these uh, serial killers and they still have that sense about them and that menacing look and you're almost, even as they're shackled up and they've got some sort of mouth guard on and everything is there, you're still a little bit nervous as to what they might be able to do if they unlock their handcuffs and suddenly make a run for it and escape. He looks menacing. He's a little bit scary. But it's also very pathetic when you look at his chains and see what is going to happen to him. So what impact should Satan have if we remember that he's a public spectacle? When Satan accuses us, we should remember that he's a public spectacle. So then what impact should he have upon us? None at all. Listening to a prisoner's counsel is foolish. Who listens to a, a, a criminal taking advice from a criminal? You don't do it. Doing what Satan says while he's powerless in chains is even more foolish than listening to him, to actually do what he says. To submit to his chains when he is in chains himself is the height of foolishness. The spoils of Christ include our freedom. Would we really go and start doing what Satan wants again and give up our freedom? Submitting to laws that he imposes upon us? And then the worship of Satan would be even more foolish than listening to him or doing what he says and that's what's hinted at, that it was even a, a temptation in the church in Colossae in verse 18. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. In one sense, everyone who's not in the Lamb's Book of Life, the Bible teaches us, is a worshipper of the devil. But there are people who pander to the spirits as well. I've no doubt that tonight, probably here in Sydney somewhere, someone will be in a seance and they'll be pandering to some demons and hailing them and asking them for wisdom and help with their life. How foolish when you consider, when you remember Satan's chains and what Christ has done to him, that there is a conqueror of such demons, and that conqueror is all-knowing and all-powerful. How foolish to pander to such demons and worship them. And so what do we do if we ignore Satan? What do we do once we remember Satan's imprisoned status. Well, we ignore him and keep trusting in Christ's work. And don't be afraid. We need to keep looking to Christ. Ignore Satan, look at Christ. Don't look at nothing, look at Christ. And look at the salvation that he has brought, that he has cancelled your debt. 
Yes, Satan will roar at us, but we ignore it and keep on looking at Christ. And that's wonderfully illustrated for us in John Bunyan's book, Pilgrim's Progress, which if you've never read, it's probably time that you had a crack at it. You may struggle with the language somewhat, but there's some kiddie versions available. Ask me at the door if you want a recommendation. But there's a, it's a wonderful allegory of a man called Christian, and he's on his way to the celestial city, and it, goes, it accounts for all the different trials that he goes through. And at one point it says that looking very narrowly before him, Christian, as he went, he spied two lions in the way. Then he was afraid and thought to go back away from the celestial city's path, for he thought nothing but death was before him. So there's these lions in the way of Christian. But the porter at the lodge, whose name is Watchful, perceiving that Christian made a halt as if he would go back, cried unto him, saying, Is thy strength so small? Fear not the lions, for they are chained. They are roaring, but they are chained, and are placed there for trial of faith, where it is, and for the discovery of those that have none. Previously, Christian had seen two people running back because of the lions. And so keeping in the midst of the path, no hurt shall come unto thee. And then I saw, this is John Bunyan speaking, I saw Christian went on, trembling for fear of the lions, but taking good heed to the directions of the porter. He heard them roar, but they did him no harm. We need to ignore those lions. And Satan is described as a roaring lion looking for someone to devour him, 1 Peter. We need to ignore him, keep our mind fixed upon Christ who has triumphed over him by the cross. That's what we need to do is look at Christ. And that's what's instructed to us in chapter 3, verse 1. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Don't set your mind upon Satan and what he's up to. Set your mind on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Look at Christ on his chariot when Satan accuses you. Look at his people rejoicing in the freedom that they have received. And then rejoice too that Christ's victory is our victory over Satan. Satan is a laughingstock. He's there in chains and he's making menacing faces and trying to make you feel bad. But when you see the triumph that Christ has made of him, then he becomes simply a laughingstock. Sing Bancroft's song privately so that no one gets sick and we're all safe. You can sing it in your heart. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin because the sinless saviour died. My sinful soul is counted free, for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me, to look on him and pardon me. So what do you do when Satan tempts you to despair and tells you of the guilt within? Upward I look and see him there, who made an end to all my sin. So remember what Satan is what he is as a public spectacle remember that he should have no impact upon us none at all we shouldn't listen to him we shouldn't do what he says we shouldn't worship him we should ignore him keep trusting in christ's work we should look at christ but what if satan continues to persist making you feel guilty reminding you of sin here's a tip for you you can speak to him and laughingly tell him that your sin that he is accusing you of actually makes you eligible for Christ. Makes you eligible for Christ. 
Christ came for the unrighteous. He came for the sick. He didn't come for the healthy, he teaches us. The doctor doesn't help those who are well, he helps those who are sick. And so when I'm reminded of my sin, what does that mean? It doesn't mean that Christ flees from me. It means that Christ welcomes me. Satan, thank you for reminding me of how terrible I am because that reminds me of how wonderful Christ is and how he loves me and welcomes me into his family. In open arms, he welcomes me. Tell that to Satan. James tells us, resist the devil and he will flee from you. If he sees that every time he reminds you of your sin and tries to make you feel guilty, that that glorifies Christ all the more because he cancels that debt too, I'm sure he won't stick around for very long. He doesn't want to magnify Christ in your eyes or anybody else's eyes. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Learn to do this from today if you haven't been doing it and even if you're a young child... Do it as well. Learn to do it from a young age. This week, I speak to the children who there's not many in the building at the moment, but I know some are out there listening to me at this time. Children, learn to resist Satan from a young age. When you feel guilty about your sin, go to Christ. Don't dwell on your sin. I heard this week of a a five-year-old who was really down in the dumps. And mum said, what's wrong? And this little girl said, I feel so bad. I'm a naughty child. I'm a bad child. And she hadn't actually done anything that morning that was bad. She'd actually been a good child and got her own breakfast and she was sitting there at the breakfast table mourning over how bad a person she is. What would you advise such a child? Would you say, of course you're not a bad child? Well, at that point, maybe she hadn't been bad, but she could have been, and this particular child has. We are very much aware of the sins of this child. She is a bad child, along with the rest of us. So what does a bad child do to overcome a sense of the guilt that she's feeling? She's under attack as well, just like the rest of us from Satan. What should she do? She should go to Christ. And if you're a child and you're listening to me now, whenever you feel bad about your sin, the wrong that you've done, confess it to Jesus. Confess it to Jesus and you can feel the weight lifted because he cancels that debt and you can know that you're forgiven by the God who reigns over all. You should also confess it to whoever you've wronged. If you've done the wrong thing to your parents, then go and say sorry. It's a wonderful way of getting forgiveness from them too and a joy in your heart. But know that if you've confessed it to Jesus, then you have that forgiveness and you are cleansed of that sin. And if you've never trusted in Jesus and you're listening to me now, if you've never come to Christ and you're not a Christian, do you realise where you stand? Do you realise where you stand? We saw that there's this public spectacle. Where do you stand as Christ comes in his chariot? Where do you stand? If you are not one of his people, you're not on the sideline rejoicing as he comes by. You're at the back of the pack. You're behind your king, Satan, who's shackled, and you're shackled with him. Don't let that be. Don't let it be that you're following him into that lake of burning sulfur that Revelation speaks of. Don't let it be. Come to Christ. Trust in him. Ask for forgiveness from Christ. And if you do, if you truly repent of your sins and say sorry to God, 
he will forgive and you will be released from those chains and be able to join the sideline and rejoice in the public spectacle of watching Satan harnessed there behind the chariot of Christ to cause you no fear any longer. Let's come to God in prayer. Let's speak to him. Lord Jesus, we come to you and we praise you as the conquering king. You have disarmed the powers and authorities. You've made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Oh, Lord Jesus, we ask that you would forgive us for so often listening to Satan's accusations and feeling guilty and being afraid. Lord, we pray that you'd forgive us that along with all the rest of our sins against yourself. And help us, O God, to have a right view of Satan and keep trusting in you and your work at the cross, even as he accuses us. Help us to look once more at you and your work at the cross and your triumph over Satan and our sin. And we pray these things in your name. Amen.